As all of you know, we're continuing in our series of all of these wonderful one another's of the New Testament, and we have considered a number of them already, even in the beginning stages of this long-running series, and I want to thank you for your encouragements, uh, for what we've been learning, and how you've responded as we have been going through these various one another's of the New Testament, we now come to live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. There are some different ways in which this connotation, this idea of being in harmony with one another is expressed by the New Testament writers. Uh, That is certainly one of them live in harmony with one another. There is also the phrase, be at peace with one another. And there is also a phrase that I think is very synonymous with those two, and that is the maintaining or the pursuing or the preserving of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All of those, I think, wonderfully and beautifully tie in together. And so tonight we'll be considering a few of these phrases, but again, under the banner of that concept of being harmonious, being sympathetic, being at peace, having unity. And these ideas, of course, are all very similar to each other. So let's see how Scripture encourages us to live peaceably together as Christians. And in our way of doing this, I want to subdivide some of these passages that we're going to be going over into two main categories. The first is this. In order to pursue harmony and peace, we need to see some of these commands as they come out of negative contexts. That's the first way that we'll attack these things. And then, secondly, we'll see some of these very commands, some of these exhortations from what we might say is more of a general context. Not necessarily coming out of a a negative one, uh, but the kind of harmony that, generally speaking, we're all supposed to have. So the first outline point will will give us a sense of how we're to live in harmony with one another out of contexts which are clearly negative. Uh, In other words, there's going to be pride we're going to be talking about, there's going to be arrogance, there's going to be tension, uh, there's going to be some real negativity to the commands to be harmonious with one another. And that'll be the first place where we turn. And I want you to turn, first of all, to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. From the very lips of our Lord Jesus himself. And this is the first passage in Mark chapter 9 where we want to think about this concept of having harmony with one another, of pursuing peace. And this comes out of the context of a very negative word, and that word, of course, is pride. Pride. In Mark chapter 9, as we begin, look, for instance, at verse 30. Mark 9, verse 30. We'll begin there and go through the rest of the chapter, not doing an exposition, of course, but just helping to set for us the context for Jesus' command to his disciples. In Mark 9, 30, The Bible says, they went out from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Stop there. Now, the juxtapositioning of what Jesus is teaching them about himself and what they were thinking not only in response to what Jesus was saying, but what they were thinking entirely devoid of what Jesus' point was, cannot be any more ironic. Because here is the Lord Jesus talking about going to the cross, right? He's talking about dying. He's talking about being killed. 
and then rising again on the third day. He's not thinking about himself. He's only concerned for others. He's not thinking about uh, anyone except those, of course, to whom he will die, including these very apostles because of their sin. What are they thinking about? Well, ironically enough, they are not thinking about the Lord. They're not thinking about others. They're thinking about whom? Themselves. He says, they're going to kill me, and after three days, I'm going to rise again. They did not understand what he was talking about. They were afraid to ask him. And then when he says, what were you discussing on the way? They kept silent because it would have been so indicting for them to reveal exactly where they were coming from. But of course, the Bible tells us that they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. When the greatest moment was upon them, and certainly in the Garden of Gethsemane, at the height of that moment, when they should have been thinking about him and praying for him, and even when he said to them, could you not tarry with me for one hour? Could you not pray for me in this great hour of my testing? They are not concerned about him. They are only concerned about themselves. And so what did Jesus do in response? Verse 35, and he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and slave of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Why the illustration? Why this object lesson? Well, because he wants them to understand clearly and unmistakably, just like this little child that I'm putting on my lap, that little child is helpless and is in great need, great dependence, and that little child isn't thinking about anything else other than their total dependency on those to help them. You have to understand, just like this little child who receives me, then you need to be like him, like her. Verse 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward." He's actually driving home the point even more deeply. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones, that's a, a reference to believers, again, likening someone as a believer to a little child, the child of dependency, the child with total trust. Now, as an object lesson, I want to tell you about believers as though they're like little children, total trust, total dependency, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And then this very, very pointed command, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now there's a lot of things wrapped up in these words, but the unmistakable teaching, because it ends with a, a very serious command, and it is this, you are so wrapped up in yourselves, you could even be guilty if you were to lead someone else into sin, like a fellow believer, and if you're not careful, all the sin of your life likened here to what you do with your hands or what you do with your feet 
what you see with your eyes. And if you don't understand that you've got to put away those things in order to enter the kingdom of God, then you're, of course, not worthy of the kingdom of God. But if you are worthy, here's what you will do. You will not only want, not want to fight with fellow believers, you'll not only not want to be in tension with fellow believers, but you will strive earnestly to be at peace with one another. That's a kingdom citizen. That's, that's what you do if you're not concerned about yourself. That's what you do when you're concerned about being at peace with one another. Jesus and the, the proud disciples are here in a very, very serious discussion about being harmonious with each other and working to slay the sin of the heart so that they might be at peace with one another. How about Paul and the proud Corinthians? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is yet another example, a very negative one to be sure, about what mitigates for us against being at peace with one another. What are the things that are temptations that we have to assiduously avoid so that we are at peace with one another? Well, think about the division of the Corinthian church. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So in the very first section of his letter to the Corinthians, he has heard from Chloe's people that there is division and division of such a kind that they are actually dividing over the boundary markers where there should not be any markers at all. There should not be any divisions between Apollos and Cephas and Paul and Christ. Why? Because those persons are not in conflict with each other. Why have divisions among yourselves. Why? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. In other words, they were still very immature as believers. And he says, and even now you're not, re not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? By now, you should be gaining in your spiritual maturity, but you are still acting as though you're a babe, not a mature son or daughter. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, slaves through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. In other words, why are you dividing among each other? Why are you taking allegiances when no allegiances should be found? I'm just a 
a man. Apollos is just a man. We're just slaves. We're, we're servants. We've been assigned tasks. We do them. I plan. Apollos waters. But God gives the growth. Why are you disharmonious with one another? Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants, as slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So now they have pronounced judgments on one another. And so that's why he says in verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You're judging me. You're probably judging each other because of these divisions. He says in verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. I've used ourselves as examples that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that is what is written in Scripture, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Why would you try to exalt me above Apollos? Why would you try to, to puff up Apollos Above me, we're just slaves. We're just servants. We're just doing what's required. We're just doing what's commanded. We're just doing what we're told. Why are you judging one another? Why are you picking up one and placing him in favor of your group against another? I mean, chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In other words, believers were taking other believers to court, a secular court. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why would you sue another believer by hauling that believer into court and on top of that, putting yourself under the adjudication of an unbelieving judge. He says, I say this, verse 5, to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brothers go to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Admittedly, this is very negative. Four chapters of the first six that Paul is, is chiding them. He's, he's warning them. He's, he's trying to plead with them. Your divisions are causing such disharmonious fellowship in the body Here's what you have to do. And he writes the rest of 1 Corinthians and he writes 2 Corinthians and there are actually a couple of letters that aren't inspired that Paul also wrote to them. One called the lost letter. There's another letter that wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit and Paul is doing everything he can to make sure that they are abiding together in unity and by the very end in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, this is what he says at the very end of the inspired correspondence with the Corinthians, here's what he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 11, finally brothers, rejoice, rejoice, aim for Restoration. Be restored to one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now that's very different than the first part of 1 Corinthians, right? 
And it's very different from some of those other chapters. And here's what Paul is doing. This this sort of final piece of the correspondence. And he's saying some very, very challenging words. Aim for restoration. Rejoice in one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Or be of the same, same mind. Think the same things together. And then this, live in peace. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. You want the Lord with you? You want the Lord with you in peace? Then be at peace. Churches are notorious for splits and divisions and factions, right? May it not be so. We're trying to win people to Jesus Christ. How are we going to be able to do so if they come into the fellowship for any length of time and they see something that isn't love, isn't peace, isn't restoration, isn't comfort, isn't grace, and what they see is infighting and divisions and dissensions and factions. And it's not as though Paul is using every opportunity at his disposal to criticize them, to speak down to them, to browbeat them. No, if you look at the Corinthian correspondence, both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you're going to find Paul pleading with them as a spiritual father. And he says, I'm admonishing you as a spiritual dad because I want you to show a watching world how harmonious you can be with one another. Live in peace. How about Paul and the proud Galatians? Look at Galatians chapter 5. And if you want to see in one place in our Bibles a litany of the kinds of opposites to harmony and peace and love and grace, you find it in the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. I want you to count the number of words that are listed here in Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 20. And going through to we find about, out about the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. I want you to circle or underline how many words are related in this context to some kind of anger, some kind of disunity, some kind of sin with the tongue, with our words. He says, verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and then here are these words related to anger or disunity. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. I count eight there. Eight terms bunched up against each other, I think for the sake of emphasis, on those things that are completely opposite of the Spirit of God, what the Spirit produces. This particular text in Galatians chapter 5 is meant to put all the works of the flesh as over against all the works of the Spirit. The works of the Spirit are those things that characterize the true believer. Not in his perfection, but certainly in the direction of his life, right? We're not saying uh, that everybody who is filled or controlled by the Spirit of God, everybody who's a Christian, because that's what uh, synonyms are in this regard, someone who is a Christian is someone who is being filled with the Spirit. Someone who's a believer is someone who is a part of what the Spirit is doing in the life of the church body. Someone who's not a Christian is someone who's involved in the works of the flesh. Now, it's true that there are sometimes those Christians who can do those things at times and on occasion that are consistent with the works of the flesh. And it is also true that sometimes those who are completely devoid of the Spirit, living out all the dictates of the flesh, might do something that might be considered kind to someone. That's true. But he's talking categorically here. He's talking about the course of someone's life. He's talking about uh, the the continuous pattern of someone's life. And here's what he says. I'm going to give you the opposites. Here they are. They are 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. And every single one of those destroy harmony in the church. I wish we had time to define every single one of those terms, but I think you get the picture, right? To have enmity, fighting, infighting with one another, strife, uh, the kind of arguing and bickering and backbiting, jealousy. He's got jealousy and envy in the same grouping here. And even fits of anger, uh, someone who has outbursts of, of anger. And then rivalries, that may be akin to what he was telling the Corinthians. Here are these divisions among you. You have set up rivalries when no rivalries exist. Dissensions. Divisions. I mean, those things have nothing to do with the Spirit of God. And look at the opposites. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. No wonder there is no law with such things because those things are generated by the Spirit of God. You see, there's every reason to pursue peace with one another because its opposite is nothing but wickedness through and through. Who wants to be, by the examination, uh, by the reputation of someone outside the fellowship, who wants to be known as a church that is full of enmity and strife and jealousy and anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy. And of course, there are many churches who say, well, that's not who we are. That's not what we're all about. But it could very well be that a closer examination finds that in certain pockets of the fellowship, there are those things. And those things are nothing other than the works of the flesh. We are to be pursuing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I mean, it's so evident, these opposites of one another, right? It's so obvious. This is, this is what we're supposed to manifest. This is what we're supposed to show. Remember this morning when we talked about our needing to appear as lights to the world, this this dying and decadent culture, this, this treacherous, deceiving world in which we live. How great is the contrast with those people who go through their weeks with nothing but what is mentioned here, enmity and strife and jealousy and anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions. Would it not be the very contrast between light and darkness for them to come into a fellowship like this and say, Frankly, I, I don't find any of that there. I find love, and joy, and peace, patience, goodness, and kindness, faithfulness, self-control. Do you think that will uh, draw them to us? Draw them to our message? This is, this is what we're all about. This is, this is who we are. This is, this is a church controlled by the Spirit. And I know that what I'm saying is capturing the great hope of so many of you, even those of you on the legacy Bethany side who've gone through some very, very challenging days. Well, guess what? It's a new day. It's a new day. God's going to work His work of grace. He already has been doing so, and He will continue to do so. And He will bring us to a place where some of the top priorities on our list are to be living in harmony with one another, being at peace with one another, preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And you know there are times even when the Apostle Paul, even out of these negative contexts, even mentions names of people who are not doing what they need to do. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. How would you like it if your name was written in recorded history about not getting along, 
Philippians chapter 4. He says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That means, again, to think the same thing, to have the same mind. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, your sweet-spiritedness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know when you read all of that together and you look at it in its proper context, he might very well be tying this idea of the peace of God, not to some ethereal sense of I've got this peace in my heart about decision making or about this choice I need to make. Maybe he's actually in the context trying to get Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord and to be harmonious with each other. Maybe he's saying something like this, and the peace of God, that is the absence of the conflicts that you are currently experiencing in the church uh, at Philippi, I want you to be harmonious in the Lord. The peace of God. It, It surpasses all understanding, and it'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How will it guard my heart and my mind? The Holy Spirit will rule and reign in my heart in such a way that if I'm Euodia, I want to be reconciled with Syntyche. If I'm Syntyche, I want to be at peace with Euodia. I want my mind guarded against the kinds of things that will destroy our relationship. I want to be right with her. Paul tells his true comrade, help these women. I mean, they've, they've labored side by side with me in the gospel along with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers. They they need to rejoice in the Lord. They need to guard their hearts. They need to guard their minds. They need to guard their words. They need to guard their relationships. These are sisters in Christ. How can they be at each other's throats? You say, well, do we have an example in Philippians? Yes, we do. Look at chapter 2. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. There it is again. Agree with one another. Think the same things with one another. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, more important. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he gives, of course, that example, the the preeminent example of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he was so totally other-centered and not self-centered that he went all the way to the cross and he died there. And don't, don't miss the words here. Negative context, I admit it. Verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He could have said it as he did it, as he did there in chapter 2, and as he says it in chapter 4. Euodia, Syntyche, there's rivalry among you, there's conceit among you, there's a lack of humility among you, you are not counting yourselves and your relationship to each other as deferring to one another, you have conflict with one another. And so he warns, gently but firmly warns, be at peace, live in peace, bank on, be secured in the peace of God, which guards your hearts and your minds. You know, often in the New Testament, not completely, but often in the New Testament, when it talks about peace, 
It's not talking about, again, some, some kind of uh, elusive idea that I need the peace of God in my heart. Uh, that's a, a very subjective thing. What are we talking about? Uh, peace and decision-making, uh, peace and this, peace and that, in terms of what I should do, where I should go, who I should marry, what car should I buy, what business should I be involved in. And we all say it, and we all know what we mean when we're saying it. I just need the peace of God. That is, that is very, very little of what the New Testament is actually talking about when it's talking about peace. The vast majority of times when it's talking about peace, it's talking about wholeness, it's talking about blessing, and in so many of these contexts which are negative, it's talking about this, the absence of conflict with one another. The absence of conflict with one another. Be at peace with one another. That's not having some ethereal peace in your heart. That's this, don't have conflicts with one another. Work at being peaceable with one another. How can we work this out? What can we do? Where have I failed? What should I do? And that should be reciprocal right back from the other person. No, what did I do? What happened in the damaging of this relationship? What do I need to do to make it right? How can we be at peace with one another? How can we be harmonious with each other? Well, I want to show you practically how to do that. And this is our second outline point for tonight. I want you to see some of the harmony and peace exhortations that are just kind of in general circumstances, all right? It's not necessarily out of a negative context, but I'm going to give these to you real, real quickly. They're going to come in sort of like a, a, a four groupings, and here they are. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you want to know practically what you should do, then these are some passages that you can tuck away in your heart that you can see how to work practically on being at peace with one another. Look at chapter 12, verse 18. This, of course, is in a context where, yes, there are people who are haughty, according to verse 16, and therefore Paul says, don't be haughty, associate with the lowly, never be conceited. That was the problem, of course, that was going on in the Philippian church, Philippians Chapter 2, and then verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then verse 18, If possible, if you can do so, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with how many? All. All people. As much as you can. Don't try to take vengeance upon yourself. Leave that to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, how do we work on this? As much as it depends on you. Do whatever you can possibly do to live peaceably with all. Look at chapter 15. Look at Romans 15. Verse 5. This was read earlier in our service. Romans 15, 5. This is the sort of the summary by Paul of some of these gray area uh, passages in chapters 14 and chapter 15. And he says in summary, Romans 15, 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In, in this uh, harmony with bold relief in accord with Christ Jesus, to the measure of Christ Jesus, the way Christ Jesus would have you do it, the way Christ Jesus himself would want to be at peace with one another. Verse 6, that together, notice the unity, together you may with one voice, there's the unity of all of the, the voices that we can muster as one, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 7, welcome one another or accept one another as Christ has accepted or welcomed you for the glory of God. Now that's one of those passages that is so power-packed with the concept of unity, and harmony, and being of one accord, and being of one voice, and accepting one another that you can't miss. This is a great memory passage, wouldn't it? So that you and I are thinking, how can I be not in conflict with so-and-so, but at peace with so-and-so? What do I need to do? What measures do I need to take? And I can hear it. I can hear it. 
but he hurt me so deeply. She wounded me so incredibly. Yes, yes, it, it happens. But what can I do? I want to be in accord with Christ Jesus. I want there to be such harmony with others, even those who have hurt me, that we with one voice may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What can I do? What role can I pursue? What, what's my responsibility? How about Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4. Paul pleads, beseeches as a prisoner of the Lord, Ephesians 4.1, for the Ephesian church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, which means putting up with one another in love, eager, notice that, Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians 4.3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to do so. And I, I hear it. I hear the cacophony of sounds. Yes, but I don't like such and such. I don't want this to happen. And you know, when I sit in church and I see this or I hear this, I don't like it. Or in these relationships, if she would do just the opposite of what she's doing, if he would stop doing what he's doing, everything would be fine. Are we eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? And it's not easy, and Satan will do everything in his power to try to drive a wedge in the fellowship because he doesn't want people to believe about us that there is one body, verse 4, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What does Satan want to do? He wants to drive a wedge in the fellowship so that people will not see our oneness. He will not, they will not see our unity. They will not see such harmony. And they will say, they're no different than me. Well, why am I commended to Christianity when they don't have any kind of different life, lifestyle, it seems to me, than I do? Colossians chapter 3. Parallel passage, Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. And above all, above all these, what are the these? Well, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, that means putting up with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord for, has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, well, gee, above all these, you mean I'm supposed to do all those things and some more? Yes. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in what kind of harmony? Perfect harmony. Boy, I long for the church with perfect harmony. You say, well, surprise, you're not going to get it in this life. Well, that, that does not prevent us from eagerly pursuing the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, right? Regardless of when that goal shall be reached, it is attainable because he says to us here that we are to love in such a way that it binds everything together in perfect harmony. And don't miss verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. There it is, the peace of Christ. You mean that, that thing that I got to have peace about? Yeah, the peace of relationships. The peace of not having hostility with one another. The peace of not having dissensions and factions and rivalries and envies. That's the stuff of the flesh. Here's the stuff of the Spirit. The peace of Christ ruling in your hearts. Church. Collective. Plural. Your hearts. You've been called into one body. Act like it. One body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. How are you supposed to 
street leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and instruct you or warn you or admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then this general command, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace. Striving for peace. Maintaining peace. Fighting for peace. I know when you put those two ideas together, it seems to be a contradiction. Fighting for peace. Yes, doing everything you can to say, how can I fight for peace? How can I fight to maintain it? If we're one body, how can I make it so practically speaking? And then finally, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. And this is where we tie up some of these passages, and I'm just going to use Peter as an example. The passages where Say, for instance, in the first part of an epistle by Paul, or here, in this case, Peter, where they say, grace and peace to you, right? Well, it's general. It's not anything in terms of a particularly negative context. So what does he mean when he says, grace and peace to you? Here's what he means. I pray, it's a wish prayer. Paul says it. Peter says it. Here's my wish prayer. I want to pray that God will overwhelm you, that God will shower you with his abundant grace. That's my wish prayer for you. It's not just the opening of a letter. It's not just some kind of an opening salutation that says, oh, and by the way, grace and peace to you. As though it's a throwaway phrase or it's what the first century letter writers uh, were customarily doing. No, he's actually throwing out a wish prayer to the Lord. And that's what he says in 1 Peter 1-2, right at the very end. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And notice how he ends it in chapter 5. He says, verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. There's the grace. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Grace and peace. That's what is supposed to pervade the fellowship. Grace, peace, love, and joy. Oh, my beloved, are you living in harmony with one another? I mean, if there's something that you need to do, if there's someone you need to talk with, if there's some relationship that's been damaged, severed, what can you do? What steps could you take? And it frankly doesn't matter if that person is continuing to be in this fellowship or they've left, left this fellowship. If you know in your heart that there's something more that you could do, that you should do, seek to live with them in harmony. Let's pray together. Father, we so desperately need to be exhorted as the Word of God has exhorted us tonight. It's an exhortation that comes out of some of those texts which clearly are talking about pride and division and disharmony and disunity. And there's some of these texts that just come to us just as general exhortations, even a wish prayer. I want grace and I want peace to be multiplied to you. I want you to be filled with the peace of Christ. I want there to be the absence of hostility and broken relationships and envy and rivalries and dissensions and factions and divisions. Oh, Heavenly Father, part of the success of this ministry will be in large part due the absence of conflict and the eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. May we take some of these passages as they have been written down. May we meditate upon them. May we seek to live them out 
May we seek to do what Peter exhorts us to do, to be brotherly, to be sympathetic, to do what we do because it's not just the peace that I need, but the peace that I can bring to others. The peace that you, Heavenly Father, will want us to have. No wonder Peter says in 1 Peter 3, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Not repaying evil for evil, but but being, on the contrary, being a blessing. Not reviling for reviling, but to do that for which we've been called so that we may obtain a blessing by being a blessing. Oh Lord, that's our heart. That's our desire. And may these one another's begin to transform the fellowship. Lord, guard our mouths. Force us to be careful about our speech what we say to people, how we respond to them. And Lord, there'll be some times when people assume that what we've said, though serious and heartfelt, will come across in their minds as harsh and unloving when it isn't so. And there will be times when our silence and our lack of the admonishment of one another will seem like love and and grace when it isn't so. Because faithful are the wounds of a friend, yet deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So allow us, Heavenly Lord, to be harmonious and sympathetic. Let us live at peace with one another to show the watching world that we have love for one another and are truly disciples of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.